This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. We are glad to have you with us, as we always are, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome into the program. As you can tell, we're going to be talking about the Faulkner Benefit Dinner. You can see that gigantic poster behind me with Representative Trey Gowdy's big head uh, back there. You know, I-, I like Representative Gowdy. I do. I, I really do. I-, I love Representative Gowdy. He's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, but I have to say, I believe that having his head behind me is not going to be nearly as beneficial to my ratings as having Nikki Haley's head behind me like I did last year. I mean, uh, no offense to, to Gowdy, but Nikki Haley's a much better looking person. And he would probably tell you that as well. But nonetheless, we are going to be talking about that. I do want to mention something real quick before we actually do talk about the Faulkner Benefit Dinner. And, and it was a great event. We've got a great show, a lot of great content, which we'll be discussing here in a second. Before we get into all of that, I did want to talk to you about a couple of quick things. First of all, the live debate that we had. We had the live debate between President Donald Trump and the former Vice President Joe Biden, of course. And it wound up being our most viewed stream ever. As of right now, we have well over a thousand views. And that's really cool. I wanted to thank you, the audience, for doing that for us. That doesn't quite double, but comes uh, pretty close to double what our previous record was for live views. And we're just ecstatic about it. We were overwhelmed by the response. And I would like to thank all of my panelists that joined me to help out with that. Laura Clark, Matt Clark, and then also Shanna Chambly and Brian Petters. Thanks, guys. You were awesome at all of that. Had some great commentary. If it had just been me reacting to the debate, I guarantee you we wouldn't have had ratings that good. And so I appreciate y'all lending us a hand. And also to Chappie's Deli, great local business. And just like a lot of other local businesses, hit pretty hard by the virus, but they were able to, to stick around. And guys, you need to be eating out at local businesses as often as possible because they're really, really hurting right now and they could really use your support. So go out and check out Chappie's Deli and other local businesses, but you know, especially Chappie's because they're one of my sponsors. So be sure to check them out on Perry Hill, Pepper Tree, Baptist South, Auburn, and Prattville. They have five convenient locations around here to serve you as well. So the next stream, we are not doing a live debate tomorrow. I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about it. They scheduled it on Wednesday because there are a bunch of heathens that don't care that some of us have a midweek Bible study to go to. That's just the way that it is. And so the pagans can have their debate if they want. I'm actually really sad that I'm missing this one because I really wanted to see the Harris-Pence debate because, let's be honest, Joe Biden, not that I want anything bad to happen to him, but the guy's clearly lost a step mentally, and on top of that, he, he's no spring chicken. And granted, Trump isn't either, but there's a much better chance, just based on observing Joe Biden and his, his current state of health, that there's at least a solid chance that maybe we could have a, a vice president in Kamala Harris become the president. And, you know, with him, I don't think that he's really in charge of his campaign or what he's doing or his policies. I think that Harris is going to be more the one that's going to be running the show. And so I hate that I'm going to miss that debate, but it's on a Wednesday night. So there's there's nothing I can do about it. I won't even be seeing the debate live myself because it starts in the middle of when I have Bible study. And so 
Sorry, guys, that's just the way it is. You'll have to go somewhere else for your debate night coverage for that one. But we are going to be back for the second one. That is right, Thursday on October the 15th. We will be right here. Well, not right here because we'll be in a different studio. But we'll be right here on this channel covering the debate and hopefully we'll have we'll have a lot of the same people i'm trying to get the clarks uh, brian said that he'd probably be able to do it again shanna's a, a maybe so uh, if not we'll get other people to come in i've already asked my dad john from millbrook to do it and so we'll have a good panel don't get me wrong we just we haven't quite nailed down exactly all of that yet but be sure to watch for that in the coming weeks now let's actually get into the reason that you're here we're talking about the Faulkner Benefit Dinner, and more ecstatic I could not be. By the way, that, that giant poster back there, uh, that is not a green screen. I did not take a, a file of the graphic and throw it up on my green screen. That's an actual poster. See, I can touch it. And so I, we liberated it. It was in, in dire need of some freedom, and we liberated it from uh, the event that night. But... I got to tell you, it was a great event. Now, I observed it from the top. I was in the press room. Everybody that I know that was actually there at the event that was eating said that the food was absolutely phenomenal, so that's really cool. And I'm sure that the hotel, the Renaissance there in Montgomery, really appreciated it because just like we were talking about with Chappies a second ago, they're a local business too, and a lot of their big events have been canceled because you can't have a lot of big events. And so it just so happened, we were wondering whether or not we were going to be allowed to do this one either. We did it at half capacity. We took the tables normally, which have 10 people, and we, we parsed it down to six. And so they were able to pull it off. Faulkner didn't make as much money as it should have, and the hotel didn't probably make as much money as it wanted to. But the point is they were able to pull it off, even with the restrictions that are on board. And, and we will be talking about some of those and Governor Ivey extending the mask mandate. But that's coming up on the next show on Thursday when we do our weekly coronavirus update. But for the event itself, it still went really well. I still think that it did very, very well. And Governor Ivey actually gave the video introduction. And, and goodness knows that Governor Ivey and I are not the best of friends right now. But it was really nice of her to come out for a good cause and, and do the video. She didn't obviously show up in person, but it was a really good video, and she spoke very fondly of Faulkner, and she should. Faulkner is a great asset to the city of Montgomery. There is a lot of good that comes with that. It is a resource for the city and the people of the city. And so it was. it's great that Faulkner is there, and the Benefit Dinner helps keep it here. But one thing that they did that is really cool, and this is one of the reasons that I love this university so much, yes, they had Trey Gowdy, and he's the headliner, and he's the reason a lot of people showed up, but they decided to use this time to honor some people that are certainly deserving of honor, 150 frontline workers, so these were different people in the medical community, these were people that were, uh, they had people that were truckers, they had people that were grocers, basically the people that were keeping the supply chains running, making sure that everybody had food and medicine and everything else that they needed during the shutdown, and they honored 150 of these people and invited them up on stage. And so that was really cool. It's really great that America, even if it was just for a minute, was honoring and looking fondly upon and cheering on our frontline workers. Now, unfortunately, because of some of the stuff that's happened in the country since then, some of our frontline people have not been honored the way that they should have, like our first responders and police officers, that kind of thing. 
But, by and large, Americans still love, by a vast overwhelming majority, left and right, of all creeds and colors, they love our first responders and they are very appreciative to the brave men and women that help keep everything going during the shutdown. And I'm no different. In fact, I nominated somebody to be honored. They were selected, because they are certainly worthy of that. But they weren't able to come. It's uh, ironic that part of the reason that she was nominated and part of the reason that she was selected wound up kind of being the reason that she couldn't come. Because the person that I'm talking about is a nurse named uh, Paige Robinson. And I got to tell you, I, I have a very, I was the one that nominated her. I have a very personal tie to her because she was my chemo nurse. Back when I was going through my bout with testicular cancer, if you've been a fan of the show for more than a couple of years, you know that that was something that was a really big deal for me a couple of years ago. And the thing about a chemo nurse is that they are in an environment where everybody is immune compromised. So, granted, I'm not in any way trying to downplay the contribution of nurses that are in regular hospitals or maybe working for a, a private practice for a doctor. They had their hands full, too. Don't get me wrong. But when it came to this, when it came to a chemo nurse, that's somebody that all of their patients are at very high risk because that's a precondition for COVID-19. And they've got to be incredibly careful to make sure that they don't get it, that they don't spread it to anybody else, to make sure that the people there aren't spreading it. And so as difficult a job as it is on its face without adding all of the other complications, they added this tidal wave of stuff that they had to worry about and stuff that they had to do. Now, remember that I've been through this. At one point, my white blood cell count dropped to literally zero. They didn't have a measurable amount of white blood cells in my blood. That's how bad my immune system got at one time. And I'm a pretty healthy 31-year-old man, and I wasn't in the best shape, but I wasn't in bad shape either. And this is what that does to you. And so they are all at very high risk when it comes to this thing, and Paige is just the kind of person that, that muscles through that kind of stuff. I've seen her just go above and beyond, and I, I wanted to, since she wasn't able to be on stage and wasn't able to get the recognition that she very much deserved, I wanted to go ahead and show you this. This is a picture of her there at the hospital. So that's my buddy Paige, and she took care of me when I was sick, and she took care of a lot of people on a daily basis and continues to do so. She was at the Prattville branch of the Montgomery Cancer Center then. She's actually at the Montgomery Cancer Center now. And being able to soldier through all that, that is worthy of praise in and of itself. That alone is worthy of recognition. But that's not all that there is to this story. Because she went so far above and beyond of what she was supposed to do. And it's so easy for us as people, in the medical community or not, to just look at certain things and say, that's not my job, that's somebody else's problem, they can handle that. That's not the kind of person Paige is. Because when I was going through my chemo treatment, they had to have a port in me because I was taking so much chemo that they literally could not pump it into me fast enough to get my chemo into me. So in order to do it, and it took six hours even with the port, they had to install a port in my chest so that they could put the, the chemicals in me fast enough 
to be able to finish it up in one day because that was the uh, it was one day treatments over the span of about four months. And so Paige was, of course, the one that oversaw that. And she started to notice a problem and she started looking after my port because there was something wrong with my port. And this is not her job. She's just supposed to administer the chemo to me. That, that's basically the extent of her job description. But here's what happened. My port and the, the, the surgeon that put it in there, um, you know, my body just had a bad reaction to it. And it got infected. And so the, the cut that the surgeon had made to put it in there had not healed back. In fact, it had gotten infected. It was very dangerous. She wasn't able to put chemo in there, which was a very smart thing to do because I would have been very vulnerable at that point. And she was able to catch it before anybody else was. I wasn't even feeling, I mean, I was feeling pain because of course it's a wound, but there were holes in my chest. You could take off my bandages and see inside my chest. That's how bad this thing got. And she was the one that caught it and caught it early on. And there's a chance she saved my life. I mean, it's hard to guess that because you don't know what would have happened if, would they have caught it in time, would they not have. But there's a good chance that she saved my life because of that, because she decided to go above and beyond what she was supposed to do. And that's why she is very much deserving of my gratitude. And I am incredibly grateful to her for that. And after that, she took it upon herself to take care of that wound. Even though, again, she's a chemo nurse, that's not her job. And not only did she take the time to doctor that wound, clean it, make sure that it was okay, even after my port had been moved to another side and that wasn't even part of my cancer treatment anymore, she was still looking after me in that way. And she actually taught me how to clean the wound, how to dress it, all of this stuff. She gave me like a crash course in how to take care of this thing so that I could... She could help me do it herself, and she didn't have to do any of that. And yet she did. And with this whole pandemic, granted, I wasn't her patient by the time this thing hit. I'd already been cancer-free for about two years when this, this thing started to hit the fan. I've, I've been, go, you know, done for three now. But she was actually pregnant, so she was dealing with all of that and pregnant at the same time. And in fact, the reason that she wasn't able to come is because she just had a beautiful little baby boy. And here is a picture of her and her family. You can see there her husband, Bradley, and their kid, Bo, who is, I don't know when that picture was taken, but he's only about four weeks old now. And she got sick, came down with a fever right after... Uh, right before the benefit dinner, rather. It was actually that day, and then it turns out she wasn't able to come and get the recognition that she deserved. But, you know, part of the reason that Christ describes himself as a great physician, the reason that he offers healing to those that come to him is because taking care of the sick is a very Christ-like quality. And choosing that as your profession is a very Christ-like thing to do, to take care of people that are in need of your help. And I just think that it's so appropriate that a Christian university like Faulkner decided that they were going to honor people that embodied the spirit of Christ when it came to this pandemic. And of all the people, and I'm sure there were some great people up on stage. I don't know them, but if they were anything like Paige, 
They embodied the spirit of Christ in taking care of people when they were sick, taking care of people when they needed it the most. Saving my life, even though before I went into that cancer center to receive treatment, I didn't know her. That's just the kind of person that she is. And so I just wanted to say thank you, Paige. I, I really appreciate it. And then Faulkner went on to get to the, the main event, which was, of course, Trey Gowdy, the former representative from the state of South Carolina. And he went on to speak and had a lot of great things to say. I'll just give you a quick summary. I think that Faulkner actually will have it up at some point so that you can see it. They obviously don't release it until a little while after the speech has taken place, and that's mostly because they want you to actually come to the benefit dinner, and it's an experience, and so you get to, to have it all there. But I'll just give you some of the highlights of some of the things that Representative Gowdy spoke on. One of the things that he said was, I don't want to die in a 50-50 country. And what he meant by that was, our country is divided right down the middle now. And it's not just divided along political lines, because we've always had that. I mean, you can go all the way back to the Constitutional Convention, and we had the Federalist, and we had the Anti-Federalist. So, political controversy and being split down the middle on what we think we ought to do politically, that's not new stuff. But even the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist were united as Americans. They had fought off literally the greatest military threat in human history up to that point. And won, despite being a ragtag group of farmers from a backwater country, colonies of the British Empire. And they did it again and again and again. They, they actually fought off another British inv invasion in 1812. And this is just the kind of thing that, that people are. You could look up into World War II and even Korea and even up to 9-11, you know, just 19 years ago. We had our political divides. There were some people that really liked John Kerry and some people that really liked George W. Bush. And they had very passionate arguments about that. But we all agreed that we were Americans. There's a reason that after 9-11, George W. Bush's approval rating skyrocketed because he had a message of unity. Now, there were a whole lot of people, myself included, that weren't too fond of him afterward for various and sundry reasons. But the point is, we all felt like we were Americans. And that has started to come undone. That has started to unravel. And that was the thrust of what Representative Gowdy was really talking about the other night, and he said, if we are going to unite, we've got to do it around core principles. And he's right. Those are the only things that are going to unite us. Because we're too different to agree on everything. We're not always going to agree on the exact size or scope of government or exactly the amount that people should be taxed. We're not going to agree on all of those things all of the time. But we should be able to come together and agree, yeah, free speech is a pretty good thing. Yeah, you should be able to worship your God or teach whatever religious teaching that you want. That you have a right to not have your property just searched for no reason for somebody that has some kind of, uh, some, some sort of grudge against you and is just looking for something to prosecute you on. That you should be secure in your own house, in your own papers that you have a right to your property and the government shouldn't be able to just take your property for no reason. If they do it, they have to have a good reason and they have to compensate you for that. Those are all things in the Constitution. Those are all amendments to our Constitution. Those are the things that we ought to be able to agree on, but we're not anymore. 
And so the point of what Representative Gowdy was talking about is the only way to avoid living in a 50-50 country being split on core principles is that we as people have to get better at the art of persuasion. In other words, getting over that uncomfortable feeling of not wanting to talk about controversial issues, that's the first step. But then also, we have to maintain the art of persuasion and get good at it so that we can convince other people of those core principles. And the thing is, those core principles are a pretty easy sell. Now, we have to know them ourselves in order to teach them to other people. But the idea that people should just be able to speak their mind, the idea that people should be able to peaceably assemble if they want to, all of those things are core principles that the vast majority of human beings ought to be able to agree on. And that was a big point that he was trying to make. And he kind of brought in his background as a prosecutor because he said, when you're a prosecutor, you have to convince all 12 jurors. You can't just convince seven. You know, seven out of 12 is really, really awesome when you're a politician. Doesn't do you any good at all as a prosecutor. You might as well have not convinced anybody if you can only convince seven. And so... What he was saying is we have to master this art of persuasion. We have to know what we believe and be able to clearly articulate that to other people in a way that convinces them to believe the same way. And we have to be able to do that with our core principles, with our founders, with our history. That's something that every American should be able to do. Just like in the scripture. And he didn't say this. This is Caleb editorializing a little bit. But it's kind of like in the scripture, isn't it? Not every single person is going to be some kind of great preacher. Not everybody is going to be able to explain to you in the original Greek what this particular passage in the New Testament means in its original. But everybody can talk to people about Christ, can't they? Isn't that something that we're commanded to do, that we have to give an answer to any man that asks for the hope that resides within us? Maybe you can't explain all of the history that goes into the, the formation of the canon of the Bible, even though that would be a good thing to be able to do. But surely you can explain that you have a Savior that died for your sins and that he wants to have a relationship with you. That, that's something that every Christian should be able to give a pretty good answer on. And so that's kind of what he's talking about. I don't expect every single person to know the ins and outs of the Federalist Papers. I don't expect every American to be able to quote Adam Smith and Alexis de Tocqueville and Thomas Paine. But you should at least understand the Declaration of Independence. You should understand what the basic rights assured to people by the Constitution, God-given rights that are enshrined in the Constitution but not given by it. That should be things that every American understands. And so I think that that's really one of the things that he was trying to hint at and that he talked about a great deal when I'm just expounding upon it. The idea of core principles, those are the things that Americans ought to be able to, to persuade other people that they are good ideas. And he also gave this fantastic story about Tim Scott, another South Carolinian and a representative in the House right now. And he was talking to, to Tim Scott and talking about a story that he said that Scott told him that every single morning, his grandfather would sit there at the table with the newspaper. And the reason that he did that is because he wanted to convey to him, his grandson, who now sits in Congress, 
that it is important to know about the news, to know about what's going on in the world, to educate yourself about the issues of the day, and to be able to speak intelligently on them. And Trey Gowdy said, yeah, I, I understand that, Tim. My dad did the same thing every morning. He wanted us to know that he was reading the paper. And Tim Scott said, yeah, but the difference is that your dad could read. My grandfather couldn't. You see, Tim Scott's grandfather was a freed slave. Somebody that picked cotton because another man told him that he had to and he had no say whether or not he could or not. And he thought it was important for his grandson to learn how to read so that he could educate himself so that when he did pick up the morning paper, he wasn't just doing it for show. And his grandfather wasn't doing it out of vanity or anything like that. He just wanted a better future for his grandchildren. See, that is the American ideal. That you want better for your kids than you had yourself. And I get that that's a human thing too. Yeah, I understand it. The difference in America is it's actually possible here. If you look at the world pre-America, a better world for your kids was virtually non-existent. You had a little bit of class mobility, but it was not much. If you were born in, in, into a, a merchant family, you were a merchant. If you were born into a farming family, you were a farmer. If you were born into a, a class of knights, then you would become a knight. Now, you might be able to move down in that system, but you couldn't move up. You couldn't just become king after being a knight. There was a system in place that kept everybody pretty much where they were when they were born, and there wasn't a whole lot that you could do to change that. In America, you have, in just a couple of generations, a man that was a freed slave who couldn't read, and his grandson becomes a congressman. That only happens in America. That's something that you don't see anywhere else. And that's the reason that that is the American ethos. That it comes back to, you can make it here. If you work hard enough. If you want to work hard enough. If you have that desire and you're willing to put in the effort. Then you can do it. There's nothing here in place as far as a system that is going to stop you. And that's why this lie of systematic racism is such a load of garbage. When you've got the grandson, not the great-great-great-great-great-grandson, not even the great-great-grandson, the grandson of a freed slave making it to Congress, that's an amazing place. That's a place that could only be described as the land of the free. And that was something that he really wanted to drive home as, as well, that this is a place where anything like that can happen. But one of the things that he kind of used to illustrate this is when he's coming into Washington, D.C., when he's coming back from South Carolina or anywhere else, and he flies into Reagan Airport, you look out the window of your plane, and on one side you see what you would expect to see, Washington, D.C. proper. So you've got the White House and the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial and the National Mall and all these Smithsonian's 
And it is an incredible place. I've been there many, many times. And it is a sight. You can see the Supreme Court building. You can see the Congressional building. Uh, there's all the different department buildings. And it, it's immaculate. And it is a sight to behold. If you look out the other window on the other side of that same plane as you're flying into Reagan, do you know what you see? A bunch of green hills with white crosses. And because of that, you're reminded that all of that in D.C., which it holds such a special place in America because even though you have the Declaration and, and the Constitution written somewhere else, that's where it came to fruition. The ideas of, of small government and limited power and states being sovereign and man ruling himself without the need of a tyrant telling him to do so. But that only works because of what's on the other side of the plane. Because there were men and women that were willing to give the ultimate sacrifice to preserve the freedom of people they had never even met. And so you need both. You need both of those things to preserve liberty. One thing that I thought was really cool about what he was talking about that evening is there was a point where President Williams asked him about some of his experiences, and, and they did sort of a question and answer session. And one of the things that he asked about is the, the favorite, one of the favorite things that he's done, and he said, well, the best job I ever had was working with cops. The best job I ever had was being a prosecutor there in South Carolina and working on the street level. And I think that that's part of the reason that Trey Gowdy, even though he probably would have won re-election overwhelmingly, I mean, for Pete's sake, there's people in the Congress like Nancy Pelosi that's been there for, what, 112 years now? And Trey Gowdy was very popular in his state. Could have easily won re-election. Wouldn't have had trouble with fundraising or anything. And he chose to go back home, and I think that's just because that's where he wanted to be. You know, he didn't want being a politician to be his long-term legacy, and, and he really did genuinely enjoy working at the street level, and that's just the kind of guy that he is. And so because of that, and you could tell based on the things that he was saying, like, he, he doesn't want to run for office. In fact, I have a buddy who's not terribly politically in tune, but he kind of pays attention to it. He's a lawyer from Mobile, and I actually had no idea that he was there. He's actually an old fraternity brother of mine. And he called up, and I went down and spoke to him and asked what he thought of the program and everything, because he, he didn't even know I was going to be there. We just kind of met up spontaneously. And he said, yeah, uh, whenever a politician resigns from their office and tells me they're not running for anything else, I pretty much always assume that they're lying. Uh, not based on that speech. I think that Trey Gowdy really does not want to be an elected official anymore. I think he's just done with it, and he just wants to kind of chill from here on out. And I think that John was, was probably right on that. But he kind of summed everything up with, and, and everything sort of came to a head in this final statement, which I thought was just a fantastic way to end the question and answer session where he said, look, every right, every right that we have, the, the foundational God-given rights, it comes from the right to live. And of course, this kind of came because President Williams was asking something along the lines of abortion. But 
even beyond the abortion debate, speaking from a broader sense, Representative Gowdy said, hey, every single right comes from life and also the belief that there is an objective truth. And he's right, because if life exists, but there is no such thing as an objective truth, well then, why would we say that every single right, or sorry, that every single life has a right to live? That can't possibly be the case, because if there is no objective truth, that everything is subjective and everything is based on your circumstances, then we can't say that there is a right to life or a right to anything. We could always say, well, it's situational. In some cases, it may be right to take away somebody's rights. In some cases, it may not be. But the reason that we hold that innocent life is worth protecting is because we believe that there is a right to that life. And also, we believe that there is an objective moral truth, a higher power that we will have to answer to, but even if you don't believe in the higher power, as long as you believe that there are objective truths, then you can believe that one of those objective truths is that innocent life is worth being protected in every circumstance. And that's how you get to being pro-life, and, and that's one of the reasons that I've for a long time have said that I'm a single-issue voter when it comes to life. Now, there's a chance that you won't win my vote even if you are pro-life, but there is zero chance that you will get my vote if you are not pro-life. I was watching an interview today with Joe Jorgensen because I, I do want to be informed on the candidates and the issues, and I have voted third party in the past. I would not hesitate to vote third party again. But she's not pro-life. And because of that, that's an automatic deal breaker. I can't vote for her. There are other things that I have issues with her too, but it really doesn't matter because even if I agreed with her on 100%, of everything except for life. If there was that you know, 0.1% of the issues out there, and if life is the deal breaker, then there's nothing I can do about that. At that point, you are off my radar. I cannot give my vote to you because if I can't trust you with the basic primordial right, the right from which all other rights spring, and, and Trey Gowdy was right about that, then I, I can't trust you to protect any of the other rights because every other right is contingent upon that. And so I don't think that you can hold office if that comes to it. But here's the thing that I, I kind of wanted to wrap everything up with. Faulkner is not perfect. It has problems, and sometimes I talk about those problems, usually not on the air, but I do talk about the problems and things that I think we can improve on because I do love the organization. I want it to do better. I want it to thrive. But ultimately, when everything is said and done, I am so proud. I am so proud to work at a place that believes in those things, that believes that you do have a right to live, that every life is an important thing that is created by God, and that you have a right to it, and, and I, as another human being and as an image-bearer of God, don't have a right to say to you, a fellow image-bearer of God, that your life is not important, that your life doesn't matter, that I have no obligation to help you or assist you, that we're all God's creatures, that we are all his children. And because of that, we have a moral and spiritual obligation to help and serve one another. That's what my university believes. And they believe in that objective truth because they believe in objective truth as well. They believe in the biblical moral and they believe in a universal objective truth and that one of those objective truths is that God does exist and he demands certain things of us. The vast majority of universities in this country have completely abandoned that. Almost all of them started out with it. Almost all of them. 
even your secular organizations, most of them started as religious institutions, including Auburn and Alabama, right here in this state. But slowly, little by little, for various and sundry reasons, they abandoned that. But even when they abandoned it, they still kept on they still kept the idea that God did exist, even if it wasn't like an official part of the university, the people kept it alive. I mean, look at the Auburn Creed. It actually quotes the book of Micah in it, and it says that the purpose of man is to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's in the Auburn Creed. These are things that have been held over as a part of what Auburn once was. But now so many universities, and I'm not saying this about Auburn or Alabama specifically. I don't know Alabama's campus as well. I'm actually an Auburn alum, so I do know that one. But what has happened at so many of these campuses is they've even thrown off objective truth. Which is hilarious because they're, they're institutions of higher learning that are basically saying, well, you can't trust anything, there are no objective truths. Well, then why am I paying you all this money to teach me things that may or may not actually be true? It is ridiculous, but that's the world that we live in now. That so many universities have bought into the lie that everything is subjective, everything is situational, there's nothing that can be relied on, there is nothing outside this material world that we can rely on, nothing that we can trust in, and there is no higher purpose of mankind. Which not only erases the value of having an education, but also erases the purpose. Because the whole reason that we're supposed to educate ourselves about God's universe and His creation is as a service to him. And I just wanted to say that I really love the fact that I work in an organization that hasn't only not abandoned that, and not only hasn't abandoned the principle of objective truth, but puts biblical morality on a pedestal and front and center, and this is what we stand for. And they're not ashamed or afraid to say it. I love that. And I thought that that was very much on display at the benefit dinner and, and some of Mike Williams and, and, you know, President Williams is somebody I know personally, but he's also somebody that I have a great deal of admiration for, and I think that he has a great perspective on things. He brought that front and center. I don't agree with him on everything, but that's one thing that we're lockstep on, that a Christian education, there is value in it because it puts those values up at the front and tells you that these are the reasons that it is worth getting an education. Not just that you should have it so you can have it, or have it so that you can have a degree, but have it because it's an integration of the whole person to make yourself more acquainted with God and His universe, regardless of what you may be studying here. And I love the fact that this university does do that. And unfortunately, there are some Christian institutions that don't really hold that ethic as much as they should. And this is a hard one to talk about, not because I have any necessary uh, scruples about criticizing this particular religious group, but here's the thing. Even though I have pretty massive departures from the doctrine of the Catholic Church, there are certain things that you could always sort of count on them being an ally on, and, and to their credit, Pope Francis has continued to be pretty strong on things like abortion, for example. And so I do appreciate that, that he hasn't, you know, just completely abandoned all reason for madness on that front. But 
when it comes to some other issues, specifically ones when it comes to personal freedom and God-given rights, it seems like he's gone way off the rails on this one. The commie pope has struck again. So, and I know that I know that there's going to be some Catholics that are upset with me for bringing this up, but it's it's in the news and it's important. And frankly, if I were a Catholic, I'd be far more upset at the pope than I would be at me for pointing out the stuff that the pope said. But that's just me. Anyway, there is a headline here. This particular article comes from Reuters, and there were several different several different news sources. I could have gone to this one. I just picked this one because it was the first one I happened upon. If they skew anything or get anything wrong, I, pre- I, I apologize for that, but th- this is pretty consistent with everything that I saw on this one. So the headline is, Pope says free market trickle-down policies fail society. And that's a pretty good summary of, of what I read of what he was talking about. It's important to note, this was issued on Sunday. Pope Francis went full-on socialist and signed this and basically endorsed it. So this particular edict, I guess is the way to say it. If I'm saying that wrong, Catholics, I apologize. But he issued and signed what's known as an encyclica, which is the most authoritative form of papal writing. It's not necessarily considered infallible by the Catholic Church. I don't consider anything the, ca- the, the Pope says is infallible because he's a human being. But nonetheless, this isn't what Catholics would consider infallible, but it is the most authoritative version of palpable writing. I guess there's different levels of that stuff. I really have no idea. But I'm just going to speak on the content of what he said rather than the, the technical stuff surrounding Catholicism and, and their belief system. So I'm going to try to speak to what I know, try to stay in my wheelhouse on this one as much as possible. So this is from that same Reuters article. The encyclical, which Francis signed in ASI uh, on Sunday, covers topics such as fraternity, immigration, the, poor, the rich-poor gap, economic and social justices, healthcare imbalances, and the widening political polarization in many countries. The Pope took direct aim at trickle-down economics, the theory favored by conservatives that tax breaks and other incentives for big business and the wealthy eventually will benefit the rest of society through investment and job creation. Okay, uh, first of all, trickle-down economics is not a thing. It's not a thing in free markets. Now, it is a thing in cronyism. So if you're talking about policies or laws that are put into place that, for example, bail out banks or give several million dollars to a failed solar uh, panel company or bails out our big automakers, all of which was done by Democrats, uh, then yes, that is trickle-down economics. That is cronyism, the idea that you're going to give a bunch of money to super rich people and hope that somewhere down the line that that money winds up in the hands of poor people. That idea is stupid, and it is not free market. There is nothing less free market than taking a bunch of money from taxpayers and giving it to one of your buddies that happens to run a big business. That's not a free market. And so, the first of all, just the Pope saying stuff like this, is bad, but it seems like Reuters is doing a little bit of editorializing that maybe the Pope didn't actually say. I'm guessing since they didn't put it in quotes and the, and the way that they worded it, that you know the Pope probably didn't say, this is a conservative policy. This is probably Reuters editorializing, and I acknowledge that. 
because I do have problems with what he said, and we're going to get to that. But first of all, even the people writing this article get it wrong. Trickle-down economics is not a conservative policy. I don't know of a single conservative that thinks that the government ought to have power to tax some people and give it to very rich people in the hopes that that money winds up somewhere else. In fact, the Tea Party, you remember that organization taxed enough already? It was founded in response to the bank bailouts. It was founded in response to the most conservative grassroots movement in generations was founded around the idea that that is a bad thing. And so Reuters just completely gets their facts wrong on this. They try to attribute that to conservatives. There's not a thing in the world conservative or free market about trickle-down economics. Now, when it comes to giving big tax breaks, well, we don't want big tax breaks for big companies only. We want tax breaks for everybody. I'm in favor of a 10% flat tax. That's my policy that I want to put into place. I think it should be 10% across the board. Would that be a big tax cut for big companies? Yes. Would it also be a really, really big tax break for middle-class families? Yeah, it would be a big tax break for them too. I'm for less taxes across the board, not specifically targeted for rich people. And so they completely miscast this whole thing. So anyway, I can't... I can't tell if the Pope actually did use the phrase trickle-down. I'll get to that a little bit later. But suffice it to say that they're already out of the gate making some pretty massive missteps in their characterization here. It continues on. There were those who would have us believe that freedom of market was sufficient to keep everything secure after the pandemic hit, he wrote. So this is words directly from the Pope. No, that's not the free market's job. The free market does not promise security. The free market does not pretend to protect you from the outside world. In fact, markets are by their very existence volatile and they react to things. They are reactionary. That is what they do. The reason that they work is because they react to the environment. They wouldn't work otherwise. Because, for example, in the USSR, when some kind of stimulus enters the system, that stimulus is pretty much gone by the time that somebody actually reacts and does something about it. It's kind of like if you were to equate it to internet browsers, your free market is your Mozilla Firefox, created by the free market, or your Google Chrome, also created by the free market, versus your Internet Explorer which technically was created by the free market. But the reason for its being slow is because it didn't have to compete the way that the other two did. Why? Because it was loaded into the system when you got your PC. And by the way, I'm not saying that that means the Internet Explorer is a product of government. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm saying it's slower and provides worse service because it didn't have to compete the way that the others did. That competition, a free market principle, is what made those other browsers superior. And so, like government programs, when government runs the economy and has its control on everything, it runs like Internet Explorer, which is to say, incredibly slowly, and even after it loads, it's probably going to be buggy. That's what happens when government is in charge of things. And so... 
it's true that the free market cannot keep you. It, it doesn't protect you, nor does it pretend to protect you from outside forces or the elements or a giant storm or a market crash. It's not supposed to protect you from those things. But what it does do is that it reacts to them in a way that is less impactful, not completely non-impactful, but less impactful than if the government is running everything. It is more efficient that way. Now, sometimes you do need the government to do things, and I totally understand that. But most of the time, the free market builds, uh, winds up yielding better results, faster results, and does it cheaper. And so that's what the free market does when something like this giant pandemic hits. I mean, are you going to feel the effects if you're in a free market country? Yeah. But it's important to note here that the entire world is now looking to America for treatments. And yes, there are other countries that are trying really hard to find some kind of vaccine or treatment for COVID. And that's good. And if they get there before us, more power to them. But why is it that the entire world look to us to figure out how to deal with this thing? Because we're the only country that has a free market system. We're the only one where there's an actual profit incentive to develop these things, and that's the reason that America develops over four times as much medical innovation as the second biggest innovator of medicine, Great Britain. Literally, the rest of the world has their free healthcare, free being in quotation marks, because they usually pay through the nose for it, but the rest of the world is able to enjoy their free healthcare on their government's dole, specifically because they don't have to innovate because America's free market system does it for them. Canada isn't doing a lot of medical innovation. Why? Because they know that America is going to do it, and then they can just get whatever America comes up with and use that to treat people. And so the Pope is completely backwards here. That he's saying that the free market doesn't protect you from a pandemic. No, it doesn't. You're right on that. But if we didn't have the free market, if we didn't have at least one country in the world that had some semblance of a free market in their medical system then we would really be screwed when it came to actually figuring out how to treat this thing. America leads the way on this because there is a profit motive to do so. And then, a little bit later in the same article, Francis denounced, quote, the dogma of neoliberal faith that resorts to the magic theories of spillover or trickle. Okay, so he does actually use the, the phrase trickle in that particular thing, so that wasn't just, it was some... Reuters editorializing, but it was actually based off something the Pope did say, because that's in quotation marks. And then it continues on, as the only solution to societal problems. So in other words, spillover or trickle economics is not good to solve society's problems, is what he's saying. A good economic policy, he said, quote, makes it possible for jobs to be created and not cut. There is a tiny, tiny, tiny twinge of truth here. And that is that the free market cannot solve all your problems. And because of that, it, it, it cannot solve all of society's problems. And you should also remember that it is not a magical MacGuffin. It is not just this magical thing that solves every issue and always reacts exactly the right way to everything. Now, it usually does get things right eventually, but it's not like some kind of magical inborn for it's not the force in star wars like that's not what the free market is it doesn't solve every problem 
And so people do need to remember that, and people also don't need to make it into an idol. Look, anything in this world can become an idol. You guys know how much of a capitalist I am. I love the free market. But there are some people that treat the free market like an idol. They treat it like it's going to solve all their problems, that the salvation comes through the free market, and that's simply not true. It's just not the way that things are. There is only one being in this universe, one force in this universe, that is worthy of that level of praise and admiration, and it's Jesus Christ. That's it. The free market is great. I think the free market is probably one of the greatest forces for good in human history. It has alleviated more human suffering than any economic system in world history. But it still can't do everything. It's still not going to make a perfect world. That's just not possible. And so there is at least some level of truth in that. And what the Pope is saying is we shouldn't just trust on that alone to be the thing that solves all of our problems. Well, I agree with you on that. But it does solve way more problems than socialism. Capitalism, free markets, look, it's a, it's a flawed system because it's a system that people are involved and people are not perfect, ergo the system is not perfect. But free markets are still a better system than anything else we've come up with. It's the best bad idea we have. <laughs> that's, the, that's the commercial for it. But, you know, it, it's not going to be perfect or work every single time, and we know that. We're realistic about that. At least, you know, maybe there are some people of what he's talking about that, that do treat it almost like an idol. And that's not a good thing either. But there are definitely people that treat it like socialism is an idol that's going to create some kind of utopia. That's far more common in that camp than it is on the free market side. There are people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders that are convinced that if we just put all of their stupid boneheaded policies into place, then that would solve all of the world's problems for all time and there would be world peace and you'd never have any problems after that. They really believe this and you can tell this based on the things that they're talking about, that if we just listen to their policies, even though they failed 10,000 times, this time it would work. And so, yeah, that's a legitimate criticism of the market. But that is something that you could equally, and I think to a greater degree, criticize literally any other economic policy or ideology for. And here's the thing. Markets do create sustainable jobs, not government. So he talks about at the end there, you can you see his quote, says, a good economic policy makes it possible for jobs to be created and not cut. Well, capitalism has created far more jobs than the government ever could. You remember, for example, that really, really big stimulus bill that President Obama put into place that had shovel-ready jobs that he touted. And then he had to admit himself, yeah, shovel-ready wasn't nearly as shovel-ready as we thought. I mean, yeah, President Barack Obama grew the government, but the market suffered. And some of those jobs were create, created just for the sake of people having jobs. Well, we'll just pay people to do something. Well, what do we pay them to do? Well, I don't know, but we got to create jobs some kind of way. That's what happened there. And that's why at one point in his presidency, he had record high unemployment, sometimes as high as 15%. And yet it started coming down near the end, but it was the slowest recovery since the Great Depression. And that's because his solution to everything was, let's have the government create a job for somebody. That doesn't work. Let the free market create jobs for people. It does it far better and far more efficiently than the government ever could. So 
Francis is just wrong on that one. And then he continues on a little bit further on. Francis repeated past calls for redistribution of wealth to help the poorest and the uh, for fair access to natural resources by all. The right to private property can only be considered a secondary natural right derived from the principle of universal destination of created goods, he said. The Vatican official said that the Pope was referring to those with massive wealth. The Pope wrote the, wrote the, the belief of the early Christians, quote, that if one person lacks what is necessary to live with dignity, it is because another person is detaining it, was still valid. This is the exact opposite of the gospel. This is a gospel of Satan. I know that's going to some, offend some people that I said that, but it is the truth. What you are talking about is putting your faith and hope in a gospel of materialism, being a friend to the world, and ignoring the gospel of Christ. This is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of from somebody that purports to be a follower of Jesus Christ. When you're talking about redistribution of wealth, that if somebody else has something, it's because they took it from me, that they're detaining it from me. The reason that I can't live with dignity is because somebody else took my stuff. Not that they stole it directly from me or they took it from me because I made it, just because somehow they're detaining things from me, therefore I can't live a life of dignity. Where is that in the gospel? Gospel preaches the exact opposite of that. That a person lives with dignity regardless of what they have. Think about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Who was living with dignity? Not the rich man. He's the one that winds up in torment. He had a lot of pleasure in his life, but he wasn't living with dignity. Lazarus was. And then when he's asked about that, he says, look, you had your reward. You lived, you know, the fun life on earth. But Lazarus lived with dignity. And this is a theme that is consistent throughout the entirety of Scripture. That dignity comes from serving God, not having stuff. That's ridiculous. And this breeds envy. Isn't that something that Catholics refer to as the seven deadly sins? Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I thought Catholics were supposed to. Envy is not the same as jealousy. Jealousy means you want stuff that other people have. Envy means you don't want other people to have it just out of spite whether you get it or not. This is what that is, that there are people that are living extravagantly and they shouldn't be allowed to do that. What business is it of yours? Now, if you're talking about on a spiritual level that there's people that are hoarding all their wealth and not sharing it, not giving things to other people, well, yeah, I would say that those people are not living the way Christ told them to, if that's the way that they're living. But the idea that wealthy people exist and I'm entitled to that, and the only reason that I don't have the things that I need to live with dignity are because somebody else out there is keeping it from me, and if I just had all their stuff, then I could live with dignity, that's about as anti-Christian as anything that I've ever heard. For one, because it puts the focus on you and the world, which is the exact opposite of the Christian mindset, which is to think about others and look at things with spiritual eyes, look at things the way that God sees them, not through the material lens, but through the spiritual one. That our lives are measured not by the amount of stuff that we have, but by the good that we do to other people and the way that we obey 
God and his commands. That's what the Bible teaches, not this drivel. And another thing, too, when he talks about private property being a secondary right, that's not in the Torah, and it's not in the New Testament, so I'm kind of at a loss as to where he's getting that. Because I remember reading the Torah, maybe he should pick you know, up a Pentateuch at, at some point, and actually read through the Old Testament, the Law of Moses. If you stole from somebody, didn't matter if they were richer than you or not. You had to pay. You had to recompense them for that. If you even inadvertently, even by accident, caused some kind of terrible thing to happen to somebody's property, you still had to pay them. Because private property is something that the Bible has always asserted as being a natural right. That's the reason that our founders thought of life, liberty, and property as the three big primordial God-given rights. Because that's something that is throughout the entire Old and New Testament. One of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. That's two of them right there. And those are two things that are completely incompatible with socialism. The idea that I have to have somebody else's stuff, and if I, if I don't have it, it's because somebody else is keeping it from me. That's a victim mentality that is born out of looking at the world through a materialistic, fleshly lens. It's not something that comes from the teachings of Jesus. And then another thing that really does grind my gears about this, the message of the gospel is that living well living the good life, living a godly life, and wealth are completely mutually exclusive. There are a lot of really good, wealthy men all throughout the Bible. Look at Abraham. Look at David or Solomon. There's a lot of really good poor people, too. Look at Amos. I mean, Amos didn't have anything. Jeremiah. Jesus Christ himself. He didn't even have a pillow to lay his head upon. And so... Living the right life, living a godly life, has nothing to do with your material wealth. Some people have a lot and live a godly life. Some people have nothing and live a godly life. And the same is true of people that live an ungodly life. And so the Pope is just basically pretending as though his personal feelings, which are completely antithetical to the message of the Scripture, are something that should be entered into papal teaching. And it's just simply not true. This article continues on. Those with much must, quote, administer for the good of all, and rich nations are obliged to share wealth with poor ones. But he said that he was, quote, certainly not proposing an authoritarian and abstract universalism. So that does make it a little better, but not by much. If we were looking at this quote in a vacuum, and none of this other stuff surrounding it about redistribution of wealth were there, you might be able to write that off as saying, well, he's just talking about individuals. Well, he's just talking about a person that has more than a person. Than he, he sees a hungry guy on the side of the road. He's got food. The hungry guy has none, and so he shares his food with them. Okay, that is Christianity. When you make a choice to give of yourself to somebody else, that's Christianity. When a person from the government shows up with a weapon, holds it to your face, and says you will give that to somebody else under penalty of law— that's not Christianity, that's socialism. 
And there is nothing further from the gospel of Christ than that, to steal from somebody else to give it. To, even if you're, you have good intentions and want to give it to somebody who you deem is needier than they are, it still doesn't give you the right to take things from other people. Remember, the Old Testament was set up as a theocracy. And the people there were commanded by the law of Moses to do certain things, like leave their fields for gleaning so that poor people could come by and, and take care of it. They were commanded to be kind to strangers and to give to people that ask of them. But it was never government mandated. There was not a guy from Israel that was going to come through your field and check if you were giving the proper square acreage of gleaning to the poor people. That was just not something that happened. The government didn't enforce those things, nor was it commanded to do so by the law of Moses. And so... Every bit of this is just completely incorrect. It, like I said, in a vacuum, you might be able to write that off as talking about something that actually is biblical, which is personal charity. But that's not what he's talking about, and he makes that clear by the surrounding part. I am glad that he doesn't want to create a single world government in charge of that redistribution, but that's a real low bar to clear. The commie pope has struck again and, and struck hard. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take a quick break here, and we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Wow, I totally just did that on a whim, but that almost sounds like Gregory Post based on this article. He might actually be the commie pope. He's been masquerading as Francis, and that's why he's uh, putting all this out there. But anyway, uh, no, that was that was funny that that just happened to to coincide with what I was just talking about. So let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose. Of stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. Today's Daily Dose of Stupid is going to be pretty much the entire media. Because the media has had an absolute meltdown over Trump having the coronavirus. It's funny. I think that Trump getting the virus has affected them far more than it's affected Trump. Trump seems pretty much the same. And they have just, well, I guess they technically seem pretty much the same, too. It's just they're pitching a hissy fit again, which, frankly, that's just kind of become the way that they are now. But we'll go ahead and check this out. Say what you want about President Trump, and Lord knows that I have my disagreements with the man, and there's things that he does that I just find absolutely abhorrent. But dang it, he's the best troll that has ever existed. There has been nobody that is better at trolling the media than President Trump, and that is one of the very few qualities that I have no criticism for. I think that he's been fantastic at it. Now, granted, sometimes he does it at inappropriate times, but man, he is good at it. If you're talking about just sheer raw efficiency at trolling the media, there is nobody better than Donald J. Trump, and this is actually a, a pretty good example of it. This is just a video of him literally walking to his house. That's it. He's walking into the White House, and yet this, in and of itself, can trigger the left. Just him walking. That's all it's a video of. Now, granted, at the end, you kind of see the media's point. You kind of understand where they're coming from. But just, you know... Watch the lead up. Follow me on this one. Listen to the commentary that's going I'm on. I'm just telling everyone, no, Sanjay, this is this a is few Brooke moments Burke ago, of CNN. the other side of the helicopter. Everyone, you saw it land. The cameras were on the other side. This is him getting off as he walks up those stairs. So, Sanjay, keep going. This is where he has the mask yep, look, on. Look, he's got right? the mask he on. To the, waving at the people. Passes the press, doesn't take questions, and is going to head up those stairs. 
Still got the mask on. So he heads up the stairs, and then when he gets to the top of the stairs is when he takes now, the mask Now, there's not a soul around him. Look, everybody that's taking pictures and the media people, they're like 20 feet away from him at minimum. It looks like they're actually a lot further than that. Look, passes somebody there, still got the mask on. Now, that person was pretty close. Now he's going up to the Truman balcony. So, you know, you're getting a very different Cameraman loses him a little bit there when he's... Doctors when there's the tent. So they go to the top of the stairs here. Still got the mask on, even though there's not a soul near him. an infection with this coronavirus. We know that that infection, that, that coronavirus can be very contagious, which is why people, you know, take great pains to protect themselves uh, in the hospital. CNN anchor is beside the Here we go. A, a, a very different. Oh, he took it off! An incorrect message. And you see him here. Um, he takes it off, and he's getting ready for his pictures. The flags flank him. Right, Caitlin, this is what he did. This is the moment. This is what he produced it for. He wants the He's image to be... He's not wearing the mask, even though there's no one within 30 I'm yards strong. of him. This virus is nothing. His tweet today, feeling better than I did 20 years ago. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. There he is. This is the image he wants. Now, that did take a weird turn, I have to admit. At the end of that, I was like, really, media, you're going to make a big deal out of this? But then when the White House exploded, I was like, okay, maybe they've got a point. Considering that taking off the mask did destroy the entire White House and kill everybody in it, I understand why they wanted him to leave the mask on. That, Based on their reaction, you would think that that is what actually happened to the White House afterward. I mean, it's insane. They treated it this way. It's his house, his place of residency, that's where the man lives, and he has the mask on despite being outside the entire time he's walking up to his house, the entire time he's getting to the balcony, only when he's on the balcony, literally right outside his front door, and there's not a soul within earshot of him, just about, that he takes the thing off and waves at everybody and pauses for a picture to show everybody, hey guys, I'm, I'm back home, I'm back from the hospital, I'm okay, which is a good image. We want to know that our president is okay and healthy and able to handle things. And I would say the same thing of Barack Obama. Um, didn't like the man all that much, but whenever I heard that he was sick and then I heard that he got better, that was a good thing for us. That was a good thing for America. I was happy that he was better. First of all, the media almost seems like they're rooting against him getting better, that he should have stayed in the hospital and he shouldn't be coming out. And then they just flip out over this stupid mask thing when he's not even near anybody. Uh, it's so amazing that even doing a simple mundane thing that nobody would think twice about is enough to just send the members of the media into an absolute tailspin where they're just beside themselves that he would even consider doing this. And I think a lot of it does come from something I've talked about recently on this show as well. People in the media are leftists. The vast majority of them are. Certainly Brooke Burke and, and Sanjay Gunta that are there doing the commentary. And because of that, they believe that elected officials have far more influence over people than they actually do. Do they really believe that there are people? And the answer is yes, they absolutely believe this. But do they really believe that there are people sitting at home going, oh, look, President Trump kept his mask on for the entirety of this video right up until the point that he was on the balcony, and then he took it off. 
must not be a big deal. I'm going to go just make out with a bunch of random people and hope that they catch the virus. Like, there's not a human alive that thinks that. You see, people on the right, and by that I mean actual conservatives, not just people that vote Republicans, we tend to believe that people make their own decisions. And what people do in the public sphere, I mean, maybe it can influence people to some degree, but the people are basically free agents and they're going to do what they want to do. There are going to be some people that see that President Trump doesn't really wear a mask that often and wear one anyway because they think it's a good idea. There are going to be people that see Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and other elected officials that wear a mask all the time, even when it doesn't make any sense at all, and go, what, screw it, I'm not wearing a mask. Because people are individuals and they have their own agency. That's the way that this works. It is unfathomable to me that the left just does not understand that. They think that people are a bunch of mindless sheep that are just going to imitate whatever the political leaders they see are going to do. Part of that is because they have an outsized ego and think that they have that a similar level of influence and, and they believe that they can control the masses that way as well. But I digress. Uh, this was the message that Trump sent to everybody. This was his, he, he recorded a little video and basically talked for about a minute and a half about his experience. This is a clip from that as well, when he came home from the hospital. And I learned so much about coronavirus. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're gonna beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're gonna beat it. I went, I didn't feel so good. And two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. Don't let that happen. We have the greatest country in the world. We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front. I led. Nobody that's a leader would not do what I did. And I know there's a risk, there's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better, and maybe I'm immune, I don't know. But don't let it dominate your lives. Get out there, be careful. We have the best medicines in the world. Well done, Mr. President. I would have given a standing ovation, but, you know, I can't really do that. I'm in studio. Uh, but anyway... What was wrong with that message? The media hated it. They spent most of the day talking about how horrible and reckless and irresponsible all of that was. What was wrong with that? He didn't say, throw caution to the wind, do whatever you want to, ignore the mask mandates, uh, ignore wearing a mask in general, and we should all be packing into giant football stadiums and, and trying to infect one another. It's not what he said. That, you would think that's what he said based on the media's reaction, but that's not what the man said. He said, look, be cautious about it, be careful, but don't think that this thing is going to ruin your life. Don't think that it's going to dominate you. Don't be afraid. Be confident. This is America. We've got the greatest healthcare system in the world. We have fantastic doctors. We've got more treatments coming on the way, which, by the way, the stats bear out. The reason that the fatality rate of this virus is going down is partly because we're finding out more people had the virus than originally believed, which means that a lower percentage of them are dying, which means 
that of course that that fatality rate drops. But that's not the only thing that's going on here. We're getting better at treating this virus. For example, it, originally we thought that ventilators were the most important thing when it came to treatment of COVID-19. We found out that not only are they really not all that important, they can actually be harmful based on the person and based on the case. Sometimes something as simple as just flipping somebody over on their belly has a bigger impact on whether or not they're going to survive. And so, ultimately, in all of that, the media just lost their minds, but that's what a president is supposed to do in a crisis. That's what any leader is supposed to do in a crisis. We could look at President Ronald Reagan when you saw the whole thing with the, the space shuttle falling out of the sky, and, and then with President Bush on 9-11. But it's not just Republicans. This is not a partisan thing. I can't stand FDR. Other than Woodrow Wilson, I think he's the worst president we've ever had. But when FDR said, there's nothing to fear but fear itself, that was a good line. And that's when he was talking about the biggest depression that we'd ever faced. Now, some of that was self-inflicted, and I don't want to get off into all that. But the point is, when FDR was saying, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, that was a good message for a president to tell his people. Yes, it's going to suck. Yes, it's not going to be fun. No, you shouldn't just act like it doesn't exist, and that's not what President Trump said anyway. But we're going to get through this, because we're Americans and that's what we do. That's a guy that should be president. I mean, goodness knows he wouldn't have been my first choice to be president. But that is a thing that a president ought to be able to say and do. Look, guys, we're going to get through this. You shouldn't let this control your life or dominate your life. You shouldn't be living in fear because of this thing. If you have some pre-existing conditions, it's perfectly reasonable to take a few extra precautions. But this shouldn't be something that controls your life. If you're a 26-year-old guy that's in fantastic shape, you shouldn't be worried about this thing. There's like a 1 in 333,000 chance that you're actually going to die from this thing after you get it. Not, not even counting the fact that you just may not get it or may get it and be asymptomatic. After you get it, those are your odds. And so, this is a message that is proportional to the threat that coronavirus poses. Didn't say it poses no threat, but it is minuscule compared to what you have been sold. President Trump's response there is saying, yes, take precautions. Yes, be aware of it. Yes, don't do things that you would normally do if they are something that would put you at a higher risk. But also, don't live in fear and let this thing control your life. That's just what FDR or Reagan or Bush or other presidents that have lived through these kind of big events have said. And there's also a spiritual element to this. Do you know what the most common thing that God says to human beings are in the scripture? It's don't be afraid. Whether you're talking about Moses and the burning bush, where they're talking about Mary being informed that she's going to be the mother of the Savior of all mankind, whether you're talking about, I mean, any number of minor and major prophets, one of the most common things that he says to people is don't be afraid. Because we're human beings, and we have an amygdala, and we have fear responses. That's something that's common for us. But God tells us not to be afraid. 
That doesn't mean fear is inherently a bad thing. God gave us fear for a reason. We're supposed to be afraid of things. We can be killed by things. Being afraid of being run over by a car is the reason that we teach kids not to play in the road. But you don't let that fear control you. You don't let it dominate your life. You don't let it restrict you from actually living because you're so afraid to die. That's a winning message. And I'm not just talking about the election. I'm talking about overall, as a part of the human spirit. There's a reason that God repeats to us over and over again to not be afraid. That This isn't something that's supposed to be controlling or ruining our lives. Unfortunately, despite all of this, the media still royally flipped out over all of this, and uh, our friends at Gravian put together a montage of this. Take a look. President Trump wrote on Twitter, don't be afraid of COVID, don't let it dominate your life. Almost 210,000 Americans are dead. Speaking of outrageous, uh, this outrageous tweet. Oh my goodness, Nicole. When I saw that Trump, I mean, I, I literally was overwhelmed. And now we see this tweet, which is heartless. It is uh, cruel. Jake, this is, this is so disrespectful. I'm not even sure I can, I can speak about this. It's incredibly, uh, incredibly disrespectful. What does that mean, don't be afraid of it? I mean, first of all, it's, it's a contagious disease that kills people. There's nowhere to even begin. It's gross. It's such a distressing moment. It's just so horrible, so, so destructive to say, I feel better than I have in 20 years. That he's saying this is so disrespectful. The president says it's no big deal. Uh, I mean, it's outrageous. It is insulting uh, to the people who have lost loved ones. It is insulting to every American who wears a mask. I mean, it's disgraceful, Wolf. It's absurd. Don't tell your supporters, don't be afraid of COVID. Everyone should be afraid of COVID. It's okay to be afraid of COVID, and it's okay that, that it's dominating your life because it has dominated your life. We have the media we deserve. They are so they are so bent on this thing dominating your life about it being the only thing in your life. First of all, for anybody that is even somewhat spiritually minded, that should never be true of any virus. If this were literally airborne Ebola and people were dying left and right and two-thirds of the population were dead because of this virus, it's not that, but let's pretend that it was. It still shouldn't dominate your life. Because from a spiritual perspective, there is nothing, no matter how dangerous, no matter how bad, on this side of eternity, that it should keep you from spreading the message of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Doesn't mean be dumb about it, doesn't mean to be reckless. But as far as dominating your life, nothing should dominate your life other than Jesus Christ. That should be the only dominating factor in your life. But putting the spiritual of that aside, let's think. Why would the media want this to dominate your life, hmm, what could their motivation possibly be? Well, could be that they're in the media, and the more panicked you are, the more afraid you are, the more you cower in your home, the more that the only thing you have to do is watch them and just be more and more afraid. So part of it is self-serving. 
Part of it is I really do genuinely think that part of the reason they want people to panic and be afraid about this is because they know that it helps their ratings. If people think that this is much more severe and serious than it actually is, it's like that stupid Malaysian airliner. And I know people died. People lost loved ones in that. I understand. But there were other things going on in the world, and they were making that 24-hour wall-to-wall coverage for like a month. And why did they do that? Because their ratings went up. Human beings, unfortunately, they don't respond to fear well. We, we don't give measured responses. We see one anecdotal case of one weird anomaly and we assume that it's going to happen to us, even though the odds of that are incredibly minute. And the airliner is one example of that, but more common ones include things like shark attacks, which... The media will play up and, and make a big deal about that, even though the odds of you getting attacked by a shark are practically nothing. In fact, the things that events like these are in the news means that they're uncommon, because if they were common, they wouldn't be in the news. So that is a big part of it. But I think an equally scary part is that so many of these people have bought into the idea that if you are going to be afraid then you're also not going to be going out and helping the economy and living your life, and you're also going to blame Donald Trump for all of this, and that you're going to go out and vote for Democrats. And so, unfortunately, it's twofold. Also keep in mind, for a long time, even long after CNN went over the deep end, I have been a defender and a fan of Jake Tapper. He's one of the few people that I thought has maintained some level of objectivity even throughout the whole impeachment thing. I'm not saying perfect, I'm not saying he never showed any left-leaning, but he was somebody that at least kind of tried to be objective. He has been awful on the coronavirus thing. I remember a couple weeks ago, he was talking about Rand Paul and that, you know, tiff that he had with Dr. Fauci, saying, you know, Rand Paul, who just says unscientific things all the time. And then the guy who was a guest of his who agreed with Jake Tapper said, well, we should also acknowledge that even though Rand Paul, I think, is wrong on this, that he is a doctor, too. And he's like, yeah, well, he's an eye doctor. It's not like he's a real MD. Well, well no, he went through medical school. Yes, he specializes in the eyes, just like a heart surgeon specializes in the heart. But they both went through medical school. He, he, Rand Paul is a real doctor. He's not like a he's not Dr. Pepper or something. He, he's a real doctor. And so, uh, Jake Tapper's just been horrible on this whole thing. Yeah, he's not been as bad as, like, Brian Stelter or any of those. But he's just been awful, and that whole thing, where, well, it should dominate your life. No, it shouldn't. Nothing should dominate your life like that. No matter how bad it is, even if it were 10,000 times worse than it is, which is about the level that it would have to be to even register on most people's radars, actually 10,000 wouldn't even be enough to be perfectly honest, based on the statistics. But nonetheless, um, it depends on if you're talking about log uh, logarithmically or, or by you know a measure of degrees. But anyway, so that all being said, this does show that they will flip on absolutely anything because of their hatred of Trump. That they will say, saying don't live in fear, don't let it dominate your life, and, and don't let this thing create a panic, that that is a bad thing to do. Why? Because the very, very bad, very, very orange man Donald Trump said it. And if you don't believe that that is proof that they will flip on absolutely anything just because Trump said it, why don't we watch a quick montage of a bunch of Democrats saying basically exactly the same thing?
There's really no need to panic and to avoid activities that we always do as New Yorkers. This should not stop you from going about your life, should not stop you from going to Chinatown and going out to eat. But I want to take a moment to say it's not a time to panic about coronavirus. We think we have the best health care system on the planet right here in New York. This is not Ebola. This is not SARS. This is not some science fiction movie come to life. Uh, you know, the hysteria here is way uh, out of line with the actuality and the facts. Uh, there's very little threat here. This disease, even if you were to get it, basically acts like a common cold or flu. And transmission is not that easy. Downplaying it, being overly dismissive, or spreading misinformation is only going to hurt us and further advantage the spread of the disease. But neither should we panic. That sounds pretty much like all the stuff Trump just said, doesn't it? Don't panic. Don't let it ruin your life. Don't let it stop you from going out and living your life. I guess when Democrats say it, it's fine. Let's also remember, because you saw the dates on those as they were rolling past, those all happened at the beginning of the pandemic, back when there was a lot more unknown and a lot more, frankly, to be scared about. Now that we have the numbers in, we've seen how it affects society and seen that it's actually significantly less deadly than we originally thought. Trump says, you know, don't panic, go out and live your life. Then all of a sudden the media just can't deal with it. Wait, I can't even explain it to you. Uh, I love how so many of them were like, well, I don't know why it's bad. They didn't say that, obviously. They're like, um, it's just bad. It's disgraceful. It's gross. It's despicable. It's disrespectful. Anybody care to explain why? You want to give a reason that it's disrespectful or disgraceful or horrible or... No, it's, it's just because Trump's a bad guy. And, and because he's a bad guy, all the things that he does are also bad. That seems to be their only rationale and logic, unfortunately. Look, Americans do not cower and sit in their homes. They don't hide behind a king or an army or a president, they go out and they do. We're fighters. We're cowboys. We're explorers. We're the country that landed on the moon and defeated Nazism and settled the West. We never had a tyrant. We never had a king. And because of that, the message of America has always been, you go out, you do it, you make it happen. You want something done? You start it. That's something that was completely unique to us at the time of our founding. That's something that the world had not seen at that point. That a man can go out and rule himself, and, and all he needs is his family and his God, and he can do it on his own. He didn't need the permission of a king or a dictator or anything like that. And because of that, this whole thing cuts against the American mindset. We're not supposed to be afraid. When we see something that needs to be done, we just go out and do it. That's who we are. It's what we are. It's what we've always been and always will be. That's America. We're the ones that take off in a wagon across the mountain ranges, having no idea what's on the other side, and just packing up and leaving everything that we've ever known and going out there because there's opportunity out there opportunity fresh for the taking. We're the ones that, you know, blast off into space and, and 
go after the biggest threats militarily the world has ever seen and still come out the other side okay. And one thing that we've had in common, even with the leaders that I don't like and didn't, didn't respect and, and don't really have any love for even to this day, one thing that our leaders used to always have in common is that when they came out and said, we'll be okay, we'll get through this, don't be afraid, we're Americans, we will be all right. Don't be afraid. Everybody applauded them when they said that. Now, there is such a seething hatred for this guy that the media can't even get behind that, and it just blows my mind that that is the case now. But ultimately, I think it's because the media has forgotten who Americans really are. They've been so out of touch for so long. They've forgotten that we are the cowboys. We are the explorers. We are the people that charge forward into the gunfire, if necessary. If it means preserving liberty. So many people have been, and it's been heartbreaking for me, watching Americans just gleefully give away their liberty and beg to have their freedoms taken from them. It does break my heart. But ultimately, I still believe that freedom is worth fighting for. And that you can't do that if you're cowering in a corner hoping for somebody, whether it's a president or a governor or any other elected official or non-elected official, to take care of you. I don't want to be taken care of. I want my freedom. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Because of everything that we've been talking about, I just thought it was appropriate to suspend the series we've been doing on 1 Samuel just for today and talk about this because we've talked so much today about fear and how big a part it plays in not just this with the coronavirus, but in the human heart in general. And God really understood this and has for a really long time. And so he speaks to us through Paul through inspiration, and we're going to go ahead and look at Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, keeping in mind that really, even though we're commanded to fear God, that's really the only thing we are commanded to fear. Everything else we're commanded not to fear, and Paul illustrates that very well in Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting death the de- putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and that 
And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I really love this passage of Scripture, and always have. Romans 8 may be the best chapter in the entire Bible. I mean, maybe other than the crucifixion stories, because there's four chapters, one in each of the Gospels, and really there's some spillover in Luke. But anyway, if you're looking at those chapters, I think you could say that those are better. But as far as, like, in the epistles, I think Romans 8 is probably the best chapter for sure in anything past the Gospels. And this is a, a great example of why, you see how it starts out there, contrasting flesh and spirit. It's saying that the, the people of the world, your average person, they live by flesh. We're not supposed to do that. We're Christians. We live by the spirit. It's a completely different mindset. It's a completely different lifestyle. We should be noticeably different to other people because we are living by the Spirit and being led by it rather than being led by the flesh. Our worldly desires, our hungers and appetites, whatever our body wants, doing whatever we please with that, we don't do that. We're led by a higher calling. We're led by the Spirit. And he starts out with making that contrast, and then he makes this other secondary contrast of fear and being a child of God. These are not coincidences. So when he draws that contrast between flesh and spirit, he then, at exactly the same time, right afterward, says, and there is also a contrast between fear and being a, a child of God. In other words, if we are a child of God, then we have nothing to fear. If we believe that we are going to die one day and be with God in heaven, then what do we have to fear on this side of eternity? Why would we be afraid of literally anything that could happen to us here? That doesn't make any sense. It's not saying that you need to be reckless to the point of being suicidal or anything like that. Obviously, you shouldn't just be you know, running into to traffic and anything like that. That's not what Paul is saying at all. But he is saying that there is a, a spirit of fear. In other words, a lifestyle of fear that controls people, that fear is their driving factor, that they're, they're too afraid that they might get hurt, they're too afraid that they might die, and that could end it all. And so because of that, they listen to their fear and restrain themselves from doing what they need to do because of that. Christians aren't supposed to be that way. Christians aren't supposed to have that spirit of fear. Why? Because we know that we are led by a completely different mindset, that our fears do not control us. They're there, and sometimes fear can be a good thing. Sometimes it can warn us about dangers. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. When it becomes a bad thing, is what Paul is talking about here, is when it starts controlling you and dominating your life. And let's look at, for a second, what it would mean to be a child of God, because that's the contrast here. Fear versus a child of God. Well, if you are a child of God, then there's a level of intimacy there. In fact, the word that it uses at the end of that, Abba, Father, that is an incredibly intimate term in the original language. What it specifically means is it's, it's a title or a phrase that indicates closeness to a father, specifically one between a child and their father. And the reason that that's so significant 
is because it talks about us as being fellow heirs. In other words, we are the brother of Christ, a fellow heir in the inheritance that he has extended to all of us because he has that intimate relationship with his father. Remember that Abba is also the term that Jesus Christ himself used calling out to God in Mark 14.36 when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and about to face his greatest trial. What Paul is saying to the Christians at Rome here is, you have an intimate relationship with God. You are as close to him as Jesus Christ was because Christ has come into this world and given us the opportunity to have that kind of relationship with him, to allow us to draw close to God through the sacrificing of his own blood and washing us in it. Because of that, we have the same kind of relationship that Jesus Christ had with his father. And if that's the case, what do we have to be afraid of? You remember when Jesus calms the storm and says, peace be still, and, and stops, the, stops the waves and the storm that's there on the Sea of Galilee? Do you remember what led up to that? Jesus was in the boat, asleep, in a storm at sea. And when they wake him up, he's like, why, why'd you guy, why are you worried? You realize I'm with you, right? That I'm the Son of God and that He's not going to allow anything bad to happen to me? See, that's the kind of confidence that Christians are supposed to have. That if we're with Christ, we're buried with Him in baptism, then we have that same intimate level of relationship with God that Jesus Himself did. And that means that there's really nothing here on this side of eternity that should scare us. Was Jesus Christ afraid to be crucified? Yeah, he was. So much to the point that he was literally sweating blood. And yet, despite this, he did it anyway. He was obedient even to the point of death. Because he wasn't seeing the world through fleshly eyes. He was a child of God and acted like it. He didn't let his fear control him. He didn't let it dominate his life. He didn't keep it from doing what he needed to do. He went about living his life the way that he should, the way that God commanded him to. And I want you to also take note of, it says at the very beginning of that verse, where it talks about we are under an obligation not to the flesh or live according to the flesh, and then it goes on and says that it is the spirit of slavery that leads to fear. You see, there's been an awful lot of fear over this thing over the past several months. Because of that, there's been an awful lot of slavery. A lot of people that are obligated to, through no fault of their own, either stay home or wear a mask or whatever you want to throw out there. I'm not saying it's exactly the same as like working at a labor camp in Auschwitz. I'm not suggesting that. But there has been a curtailing of freedoms because of fear. And that's something that God acknowledged as part of the human condition, and that's why he brings it up here, is that that spirit of slavery is what leads to fear. If we're still slaves to sin, if we're still slaves to this world, if we still think like the world wants us to think, then we are going to be subject to its slavery and the fear that comes with that. You see, that's why America is different. The spirit of slavery leads to fear. 
The spirit of freedom leads to courage, which is not the absence of fear, but the overcoming of fear. When you are a free person and you understand that your life, it's contingent upon you to live the life the way that you're supposed to, then all of a sudden you have courage because you've got to. You can't rely on somebody else. You can't wait for somebody else to take care of you. You have to do it. Which means that you start seeing things through a spiritual lens. You have to or else it'll drive you crazy. And so overcoming that spirit of slavery is what leads to us overcoming our fear. See, if we're fellow heirs with Christ, if we are sons and daughters of God with him, then we need to act like it. We need to live in peace with all men. That's later in this same chapter. That's in Romans 8. And so I understand that. I'm not saying that we do whatever we want or it's a license to live how we want. It's the opposite of that. It is freedom coupled with responsibility. But ultimately what it means is we don't have to be afraid of anything on this side of eternity. We can live our lives the way that God intended and the way that he instructs us to, free from fear. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.